Well, I hope you recognize as we dive into any topic that we try to systematically understand from the perspective of the Bible, we're dealing with a book that has proved itself in history, in time, to be the, the written Word of God. It's not just a book that uh, is man's best thoughts about God and the hereafter. It is something that God has clearly revealed because He has His imprimatur, His fingerprints, all over this book doing things that no other book dares to do or has ever accomplished. Predictive prophecy, if nothing else. Uh, as I wrote in an article that uh, will come out tomorrow uh, on our newsletter, you need to go back to remembering what the Bible says about the coming of Christ. If nothing else, it should wipe away any doubt that we're dealing with a, do- a document unlike any other book that has ever been written, which gives us a sense of confidence, even when we deal with things that are very hard to understand or hard to grapple with, hard to accept. It's called written revelation. If you remember back to our bibliology class, that means something that you would not otherwise know. You wouldn't know about many of the things that God chooses to reveal unless He were to, through the prophets and the apostles, put it down in writing for us like the weird thing I found in the back of my truck last week. Do you know what it was? I I was looking for some keys on an extra set of keys that I had, and I stumbled across something that I laughed at. I thought, what is this doing back here? You know what it was? Why not? (laughs) You should know. What What do you feel that it was? What's your conjecture about what it was? How certain are you? What... Would you stake your life on it? Your guesses are weird, odd. I know some of you are guessing. What, what, what was it? See, you don't know unless I reveal it to you. No one knows what I found in the back of my truck. I told no one what I found. See, God has a whole entire reality that He has revealed to us. There's no other way for us to understand these things by simply feeling our way through it, guessing our way through it, making conjectures and thoughts and ideas and just coming up with our best imaginative guesses about the things that we can't see. We have to rely on a God who has revealed what we would not otherwise know. I found a toothbrush in the back of my truck. Don't know how it got there thought that was interesting but now i've revealed that to you now you're knowledgeable as to what i found in the back of my truck we're going to talk about demons tonight demons that you have never seen uh, information that a lot of people wonder about guess about a lot of people have written about in just purely imaginative ways hollywood has tried to depict what they think it's all about and yet we need to go to the word of god look what it says and be willing to accept at face value what we find what we can be definitive and sure of. Some things will be hard to understand and the jury might still be out on a few things by the end of the night, but we want to be able to look at God's Word with a confidence that we're dealing with God's written revelation. That's important. All right, you got your worksheet. Let's work through this. We've got a lot to cover. Let's talk about the reality of demons as you turn to Matthew chapter 25. I won't make you turn to all the texts tonight, but we need to look at several of them just to get some basic biblical support for the things, the statements, the assertions that we will make, that we will just lay that framework as to what we're talking about when we're talking about demons. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, the only time this is used 
of demons, a word that's very important for us to catch because it gives us something of the reality, the nature uh, of demons, at least broadly. Look at verse 40 at the end of this uh, text about judgment where the works reveal uh, the heart of, of the individual. The king will answer to them, verse 40, just to get a little context here. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then it'll say on those to his left, he's just uh, commended there those on his right, and he'll say to those that are condemned, he'll go through the same paradigm as you remember in this uh, word from Christ. He says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared initially, originally, which gives us some sense of the time frame of the creation of, of, of angelic beings, prepared for the diabolos, the, the slanderer, the enemy, the opponent the devil and his angelos and his messengers. So the first thing we want to note just to get started is demons are, according to the Bible, angelic beings. And I put that in quotations because they are not initially, they are not retaining their initial job description to be messengers of Almighty God. They have chosen to rebel, of course, and they are still ontologically in terms of their essence their who they are they are angels and if we have established what the bible has to say about the reality of angels then we can just slide that over and say the demons are simply angelic beings and the reality of the angelic beings are as established as the reality of the demonic beings are as established in scripture as are the angelic beings back a couple chapters uh, to chapter 12 chapter 12. A lot of words here that we'll study tonight, but uh, just to get started, let's get some uh, context here. A lot going on here. A demon-oppressed man, verse 22 says, more on that word and that translation later. Uh, interesting uh, breakdown in the ESV, not a bad one, but we'll look at that later, who was blind and mute was brought to him. So he had a demon oppressed man, blind and mute, brought to Christ, and he healed him so that the man spoke and he, he saw, that's major, and all the people were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? Of course, that was a uh, shorthand description of the coming Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, they weren't interested in losing their position of power. They said, it is only Beelzebul. Remember that? What does that mean? That's your little pop quiz from last time or two times ago. Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies, was the twist on that. Initially, it was the Lord of the house, right? The Lord of the household, which is where we go here, talking about his position here. He is the prince of demons. He is the head of the household, and disparagingly, the, the Lord of the Flies, the head of the flies, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons knowing their thoughts he said to them every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand so we've got a lot of words here giving us a sense of who these demons are in relation to satan and if satan is the one casting out satan that is his household he's divided against himself just like a house would be or a kingdom or a city would be uh, and then how's that kingdom ever going to stand and if i cast out demons by beelzebul by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, at least the inaugural phase of it. And so he establishes 
uh, clearly something about demons in relation to Satan as he describes the fact that he is not Satan. And we can put this down. Demons are not a disjointed uh, unit of, of I should, that doesn't make no sense, a disjointed mob of, of disconnected uh, rebellious people, much like we see in our society. They're very much an organized group, like in one company, one house, one kingdom, and they have their prince, they have their leader. So they're not just like uh, kind of going through the mall and, and kind of interacting with people. Demons are not like that. It would be like going into the, uh, you know, the, the, the equivalent of our enemy's uh, training camp that wants to kill us and seeing everybody who has a, a rank and has a job description and has a, uh, a role to play in, in the kingdom. They are all a part of a team led by Satan. We've learned a little bit about him, enough for us to move on to demons, and we can see that they have an agenda, they have a goal, and they are united. So, demons are angelic beings, and I mean by that not that they're good, but that they are ontologically, by nature, angels, and they are led by Satan. Could have derived that, I assume, from Matthew 25, the devil and his angels, genitive form. They are possessed by him in terms of at least his authority. Uh, Revelation 12, 4, you don't need to turn to this one because we've looked at it a couple times in our study already. But this at least gives us a sense of what's going on in terms of number. We talked about the number of the angelic beings, and we came to one conclusion, two words. How many angels are there? Pastor Mike says, a lot. That was our answer. We don't know, but a lot. We looked at all the passages that give us some numerical definition, and all we could come to is there's a whole lot. So when we ask the question about how many demons are there, the best answer we have comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. What does God reveal to us about the number of angels? He's, or demons, rather. He says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon, this is verse 3, with seven heads, ten horns, with ten, and on his heads, ten, uh, seven diadems, seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars, a word we saw that applies to angelic beings, of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman uh, about to give birth uh, that, she, uh, that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And this is a picture of Israel in the midst of the tribulation. But what we can learn here is that when it comes to the numbers, I don't know how many angels there are. All I know is that there's a lot. And when it comes to demons, all I know is that there's a lot more angels than demons. They outnumber them two to one. So we can say about angels as we try to think about the reality of angels um, or demons. I keep saying angels. Demons, uh, that demons are angelic beings. They're led by Satan. They're an organized team. And there's one-third the number of, of uh, angels. A third of all the angels got swept out. It's two to one, right? Jude 6 we should look at this, I suppose, because I'll refer back to it later. Uh, Jude, one little chapter, as you know, the sixth verse, just so you don't feel bad for them. <laughs> uh, I got to say that in the real weak-minded modern Christianity that we live amongst. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's got a reason for their problem, a syndrome, a uh, you know, disorder of some kind. We feel bad Maybe these angels are victims. Um, Jude 6, in the midst of a discussion about false teachers, puts it this way, verse 6, the angels 
who did not stay, this is a clear statement of their volitional, willful decision, within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Okay, so again, here we have them referred to as angels. I said the only time in Matthew 25, uh, so I stand corrected. Uh, he, ha- he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Now, this may be referring to a subset of demons. We'll talk about that later tonight. But at least we know here that when it comes to angels, they made willful decisions uh, to rebel. Uh, they were uh, clearly fully informed, making decisions to leave their proper authority that they had and the chain of authority, which led back to God. They shifted their captain, their king, they went with Satan, and that is something that should give us a plenty of uh, uh, resolve about the fact that we're not at all feeling bad for angelic beings. There are demonic beings. I keep saying that, don't I? Am I okay here? I feel like that's 100 miles off my cheek. Is that me? Sure it is. Uh, sorry about that. You can't hear that, right? Sometimes I hear things up here I'm not sure you hear. Where are we at? Letter E. See, this is going quick, isn't it? New Testament authors, nothing to turn to here. I just want to state that when it comes to demonic beings, thinking about the New Testament, of course, they're, they're, they're common in all of the Bible. All the New Testament authors mention demons, except for the writer of Hebrews. We're not sure who that is. And he talks significantly about angels. So let's talk about biblical words. You like word studies so much. I know you do. Old Testament. Now this is difficult. There is no standard word in Old Testament Hebrew for demon. There is no standard word. What we do in looking at trying to identify the words used for demons, uh, which I think this is a little narrow, but it does help, is looking at the uh, 2nd, 3rd century BC translation of the Hebrew text into Greek. And that's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, abbreviated with LXX, 70 scholars working on that. And so, 72 some say. Nevertheless, the Septuagint, when we see the word demon, which is almost transliterated right into English from Greek, whenever we see that show up, we start tracking what Hebrew words were used to translate into the word demon. And and that comes up with my list here tonight. Okay? Elilim. Elilim is the first word, and I start with this one uh, because it is the most common in the Old Testament. Elilim sounds like what word that you know? Hebrew word, Elohim, okay? It's not the word Elohim, but it's a cognate, a first cousin word, and Elilim has um, a translation. For instance, if you were to look up in the Septuagint, in, in Psalm 96, which is one chapter off, don't ask, um, in your Septuagint, your Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, what you'll find is the word demon in Greek translating the word elilim, which is usually translated in the Hebrew Old Testament, or the, yeah, in Hebrew into English, it's translated gods. That's the general, normal translation, just like Elohim, only it's not. It's a first cousin, it's a short, shorter version of the word, and elilim translates uh, into gods, which gives us a sense of what we're getting at when we see the word used some 200 plus times. 
not for God. You can find the word gods, uh, you can find the word Elohim used 200 plus times. I started to count them and then I gave up because uh, my computer, the way it was done, I couldn't, it couldn't count them for me. Uh, after I got over about 220, I gave up. Sorry. What's the point? The point is we're not talking about God. Elohim is plural, right? We know that's God in this majestic plural that we have of God. We've dealt with that in this series. But Elohim is the word used for the gods, translated small g in our Bible, uh, or translated uh, demon. Psalm 96. If you turn there, matter of fact, if you look at verse 4, you'll see the word Elohim referencing gods, and then you'll see Elohim in verse 5 translated demons in the Septuagint. Uh, but you'll see this use and you'll go, oh yeah, I know that. I see that all the time. Well, what are we talking about? The understanding of this word is generally in the Old Testament referring to demons. For great is the Lord, verse 4, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, Elohim. And in the Septuagint, it's translated theos, but in the plural, theus. And then for all the Elohim, the demons of the people are worthless idols. The gods of the people is translated in the ESV. But the Lord made the heavens. That starts to become chilling because, I mean, obviously we're not in this age where you go around calling things that people serve gods. But I mean, the, the gods of the people are whatever they, they serve, whatever they see as their ultimate priority and goal. And that the Bible sees many times, 200 plus times, as demons the demons are gods what is it re- what is it trying to differentiate not human it's beyond this this earth it's beyond just earthly powers these are spiritual powers elohim shedhim shedhim i am always is a plural elohim is plural shedhim is plural if you turned in the psalms you're not far from this one we can look at this, which the ESV does translate demons, just like the Septuagint will translate it, uh, daemon. And, and so here it is. Verse 36 says, They serve their idols, which became a snare to them. Verse 37, They sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the Shadim, the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, the land that was polluted with blood. By the way, I know everybody talks about the critics of the Bible, this genocide that took place uh, in Canaan. It put an end to child sacrifice. Here's another reminder of it in these folks that kept killing their own children as they sacrificed their children to the demons. Uh, That was an unrecoverable culture. If you marched into a culture and that's what they did and they were all in subjection to demonic spirits casting their own newborn children into the fire to appease the demons, that's what happened in Canaan and why Israel was sent in to exterminate them. Genocide, call it whatever you want. God had had enough and he used Israel to rout them out. The Shadim means rulers, lords, authorities. And just like Elalim, it, it has that sense of beyond the human authority. Just like in the New Testament, we have these powers, principalities, powers, and authorities, all those words. In the Old Testament, we have similar words here as it relates uh, to the demonic spirits. Sharim or Serim. Now, this one's weird. Let's see how the ESV translates Leviticus 17. Look at verse 6 for a little context. 
priests throw blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, just like when you walk up to Ruth's Chris or someplace where they're, oh, nothing better. And that's the idea. This barbecue supplying for the, the needs of the Levitical families and some of it burned up as a gift to God. They ne- shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to, how does it translate it? Goat demons. Is that weird? Are they picturing now, you know, Anton LaVey and, you know, his weird uh, goat heads and all that? Uh, interesting, uh, interesting translation. And, and, and it's, what it, it's what it, how it should read. But Sherim means, or Serim means, one or the other, you're looking that up for me, uh, Serim or Sherim, it means uh, hairy, okay? And, and, and goat is a good translation because the goats, the hairy goats, the unkept goats uh, that lived in the desolate uh, say, for instance, a picture the, the, the city that was overrun by the Philistines or by the Israelites and it was left there uh, as something that was just desolate where the goats would roam through there and it was an eerie feeling of seeing a city that once was populated and buildings that are all half knocked down and living in there were, were the goats, the hairy goats. That, that's the picture here used to describe the sense of these these creatures living in in a desolate, destroyed uh, environment, which of course is the picture of God casting out his his rebellious angelic beings and and casting them down to earth, so to speak. They are now cast from the presence of God and from his glory. They are the Shadim, not Shadim, I'm sorry, they're the Serim. They are those that are like the hairy goats walking through the destroyed place, the goat demons. Yes, hairy, hairy creatures. Now again, is that trying to give us a sense that they're hairy creatures? That's not the idea. The idea is that they are out of the presence, the glory, and the nurture of God's order and grace and keeping. Number four, this one will surprise you. Only one time, and it's found in Isaiah 65, 11. This one you should turn to. This is interesting. Gad, what is Gad? When you, if I say Gad, you're going to say, what is, if I say, what is Gad, you're going to say what? One of the tribes of Israel it is one of the tribes of Israel. And if when it's listed there, and I assume it is when all the sons are listed in Genesis, uh, there'll be a footnote that says something like this, good fortune. That's what the Hebrew word gad means. It means good fortune. Good fortune, obviously, as it relates to God's providential good given to gad and his descendants. God, Yahweh, is the, the good fortune. Of, of the Gadites, okay? It's not how it's used here. Take a look at Isaiah 65. Let's get some context. Verse 10, Sharon shall become, that's the land of God, a pasture for flocks, the valley of Echor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for, there's the word Gad, okay? In the Septuagint, it's translated the, the, the daemon, the, the demons, okay? Those who set a table for the demons, which in this case they call fortune, they look for fortune, for good to come from the demons, right? Uh, and fill cups mixed to, though it's not translated daemon in the Septuagint, you can bet this is another one, right? Destiny, if you are setting a table to worship the fortune and destiny, then I, I will destine you to the sword, 
And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you didn't listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes, and you chose what I did not delight in. Fortune, destiny, when you turn your attention here to the stars, to the sky, to fate, to what did I, how did I put it, to, to luck, uh, that with not, your, with not looking to the God of the universe to do good to you, you're looking somewhere else to fate, the stars, to luck, then that is equated in this text and has been at least from the 3rd century B.C. to turning to demons. Interesting, isn't it? Last one, Q-E-T-E-R, Keter. The Keter in Hebrew translated demons in the Septuagint found in Psalm 91. I'll just read that one for you. It says, You shall not fear the terror at night or the arrows that fly by day. Very familiar psalm. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the keter, the the destruction that wastes at noontime. Something that seeks to destroy you. The thing that's going to take you out. The Septuagint translates this demons. So we have a variety of words. Destruction in this case, describing this demonic class it would have been great had in hebrew which is a smaller vocabulary than greek if we had a word that was designated for these spirit beings we would probably drop the uh, uh, elilim we wouldn't have that uh, that frequent use of gods and a few of these other words we could have a word that would differentiate from the supernatural being of god and his angels unfortunately uh, we have a mix of words here not until Greek do we have a real clear, definitive word that differentiates between the powers of heaven, the power of God, and the power and work of angels. And it is what we transliterate into English, almost at least, daemon. Okay? Now, this is going to be interesting uh, to you. I'm just going to tell you that, hoping that it will be. Um, Matthew chapter 8, 31. You don't need to turn there if you don't care to, but it simply is translated demons. But you've only got it one time in the New Testament. What do you mean? You got a word for demon and now you're telling me it's only one time? That's right. That's what I'm saying. We finally have a word for demon, which differentiates itself from God, the, the, the ultimate power of the universe, and angels, the messengers of God that are elect and good. Now we have a word that designates the fallen angels... And it's daemon. And daemon, unfortunately, is only used once. And it's not unfortunate because the other one I'm about to show you is super clear. It's translated here, demons, okay? Uh, But it only shows up once. Why? Here's why. Because of the next word. Oh, by the way, demon simply means uh, divinity, God, beyond the natural, supernatural. It's much like the word uh, elim or, or Elohim, Elilim or Elohim. But what happens now is now that we have this word for fallen angels, it's turned into a diminutive. It's, it adds this ending from now on in the New Testament some 63 times. And uh, when you normally see the word demons, you have the word uh, deomion, right? Deomion. Deomion is the word that is the word demon, only used once in the Bible, used elsewhere outside the Bible. But when Christians are writing about demons, they make them chumps, right? They, 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 they make them smaller. They use a word that is, is a diminutive of the word, right? It, it's like what happened to us 
in, in, uh, in the New Testament when they tried to insult us, and we took it as a compliment. And that is that they called us little Christs, right? Christians. It's the same ending uh, in Greek. It, it is a diminutive of Christ. You're like a little Christ, okay? Well, now we have a bad angelic being, and they're always called, except for one time in Matthew 8, uh, or yeah, Matthew eight thirty one. Besides that, one time it's always added this this in our language I A N on the end, which means you know the 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 little spirits, the little evil beings, the the little fallen angels, as a bit of a slam. Much like uh, Beelzebub became a a twisted word that gave us a sense of of insult. And so it was for the word demon. This is the most common word, but I started with the word daemon because daemon, or demon in our language, it, it, it is the word that this word is built on. But the common word is, it's a little one. Of course, they're not to be trifled with, but it is insulting. Three, this one you know. It makes it into a lot of English words, pneumatic, pneumonia, pneumata here. We're used to the word pneuma, pneumata what does that mean spirit or really the when you say you have pneumonia what is what is that what are we referring to your breath right pneuma means breath or spirit but the idea is your breath is not like your bones and your flesh it is invisible that's the idea of this word uh, as it relates to spirit beings you can't see them they're the pneumata they're 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 not tangible they're not corporal they're not they're not, uh, they're not something you can touch or, 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 or run into, the pneumata. And then lastly, we saw this, I was going to say only once, but we saw it over there in reference to demons in Jude 6. I should have counted these up, but let's just say a couple or a few times in the New Testament, and that is Angelos is angels, right? The devil and his angels. Okay, so we've got four words that, uh, that describe the demons. There are two other important New Testament words that we need to know about. We're going to get into this in a lot more detail, but we need to introduce it now because we're talking through the words. Daemon or daemonion, which is a small diminutive form of the word demon, is utilized many times uh, to describe something that's translated in the ESV. Uh, I say many times, mostly in the Gospels, in the Gospels alone, I guess, uh, 13 times. Seven times the ESV chooses to... Uh, translate this word, uh, demonizomai, it translates it seven times demon oppression or oppressed by a demon and six times demon possessed, okay? Uh, which is not bad because what most people would say uh, who study angelology or demonology, they would say that demon possession is probably not a real good translation of demonizomai anyway. Okay? To make sense of daemonizomai, let's tear it apart. Daemon, you know, or daemon is, is, is demon. Is, is the, it's a causal stem. It gives us a sense in, in grammar in Greek that something is, is causing something else. And omai, which is a shortened verb, of, shortened form of the word that, that, that relates to us passivity. Anybody who takes first year Greek learns that this is a, the, what we call a passive ending. Say so. Uh, daemonizomai is the word demon with a causal stem with an ending that shows passivity. Uh, another way to say this is that when someone is 
daimonizomai, and you have to translate that. What you're trying to show in the text is that someone has a demon-caused passivity. They're not themselves anymore. Something's happening to them or something's happening through them. Do you get why they translate it two different ways? Something's happening to them, oppression, that is causing them to retreat and the demon to have his way. Like when the kid is thrown into the fire, he's not throwing himself, right? Uh, or, or he runs up and falls back. You remember all these pictures? We'll look at these. We get more into the whole uh, discussion of, of demonization. Which again, when I use the word demonization, I'm just really using this word, demonizomai. And that means that someone has some kind of passivity because a demon is active. A demon-caused passivity. Okay? It's better than saying demon-possessed, though that's not a huge theological faux pas. Everybody says it. Uh, but they're not possessing you, right? They don't own anything. But it's like they own you if they are utilizing you like they do own you. They're dominating you. And you become passive and they work actively on you or through you to a place that makes you not you anymore. Uh, Demonizomai. Pressed by demon seven times or demon oppression or demon oppressed six times demon possession in the ESV, which is interesting the way that they break that down. They're not consistent, and I'm not sure why, because it's the same exact word, okay? Two, two words here. I try to put a little color in this, but I'm so colorblind, I don't know if you can tell. You see the word daemon in the end of this word. The beginning of this word, dicey, dicey is the word to revere or to give reverence. Obviously, daemon is demons, which is always in the plural, so I put the S on it. Demon is singular, but demonii is plural. That word is a, word, a compound word that is going to shock you when you see it in context. So let's look at it. Shock you, that may be an overstatement, but it shall raise your eyebrow a few millimeters as you see this. So once you write that down, dicey means to revere. Demon is demons, to revere demons. Okay? That's the compound word. It only shows up twice in the New Testament. But it is so important because it should bring some connection to what we see going on around the world every day. Let's start with um, Acts 17, 22. You know the context. Paul is brought before the Areopagus, which is basically the scholars of Athens. Uh, they're meeting at probably near Mars Hill. It wasn't Mars Hill, but uh, in the place where they brought people to discuss the issues of the day, to hear whatever was latest and new amongst the scholars. Paul's brought there. Verse 22 says, as he begins his, his monologue to the folks, he says, uh, standing in the, or Luke writes, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he says, quote, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very, ESV translates it, religious. There's our word. It's the reverence of demons. That's the compound word. The idea of this word, again, now I hate that we're dealing with languages here. That in this context and in the other context we're going to look at are all about false religions. Okay? When James uses it, pure and undefiled religion, religion itself is really, I know it's a bad word in evangelical circles, but it's not a bad word in the Bible as James uses it, and that is to show my reverence for God 
But in this context, if it's a false religion, which clearly the context is, he's going to talk about, in what's the next verse say? I passed along and observed your objects of worship, and I found an altar with an unknown inscription, with an inscription rather, to an unknown God. Well, they had all these false gods. If it's a false god, then it's reverence to demons. Now, does that start to sound familiar, what Paul is saying in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 10, when he's talking about the idols? And he says, really, when someone offers something to an idol or a false religious system, what they're really doing is offering it to demons. See, the whole point then, if you've ever heard the old-time preachers say religion or false religion is, is nothing more than, than demonic, right? This is where they get this because the word in the Bible which is a compound of revering demons, is translated in context people's worship of something other than God. And in this case, even the erudite uh, scholars of Athens. Chapter 25, look at this one. Now that's Paul, and you may say, well, wow, he's using that word uh, in, a, in a pejorative way. Well, maybe, but he's not the only one. Festus is now bringing Paul before King Agrippa the lesser official to the higher official, the king. And he's at Caesarea, beautiful Caesarea, where we will go if you're going with us to Israel. Verse 18, when the accusers stood up, now this is Festus talking, they brought no charge in his case, that's Paul's case, of such evils as I suppose. No, I thought this guy was terrible. And they started bringing the charges against him. Uh, Rather, what was the problem? They had certain points of dispute with him about their own, there's the word again, their worship of demons. That's the compound word, translated religion, about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who was dead, apparently, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being at loss to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding the it goes. Two uses of this word. In Festus's mind, of course, this is not the true religion, so for him, it's just another, you know, demon that's being worshipped. Even the secularist uses this word this way. If it's wrong and it's not, it's not the true God, if it's some kind of reverence, some kind of worship, some kind of religious tenets, if it's a confession, a creed, or if it's something that people live by that's beyond the natural to the supernatural and it's not the God of the Bible, the Bible uses the word at least twice. One, it's in the mouth of Paul, once in the mouth of Festus to describe it as the allegiance or reverence to demonic beings. Interesting. Number three, that was the front page misconceptions regarding demons misconception number one which i don't know if it's that common anymore but i guess there's still some in our society that think this way and that is that that uh demons are just some kind of impersonal force there's a bit of an oxymoron in that sentence they (laughs) are an impersonal force Uh, demons whatever they are quote unquote they're just some kind of force i quote now this section of Jesus' encounter with the demon in the guy who wants to go into the pigs. Remember that? Why? Because don't send us to our torment now. What is that all about? Well, clearly it's not the talk of some force of evil, right? These are personal beings, intellect, emotion, and will. Every time we see an encounter with a demon in the Bible, clearly they are just like angels and just like you and I in that they have this definition of personhood. They think, they reason, they, they, they feel, they respond, they have fear in that case. Don't send us to our torment now. Let us go somewhere else. Uh, and they make decisions. They said, how about the pigs? That is just one example of just about any encounter you find with demons in the Bible where they are not an impersonal force. 
This, though, is popular in our culture. They're dead people. That's what they are. They're people that have died. I think if you press the average non-Christian or non-church-going person, this is probably what they think they are. A lot of people do believe in demons that aren't Christians, and they believe in evil spirits, whatever you want to call them. But what they think they are is departed people. All I can say in response to that is, obviously there's no indication at all in the Bible, but I would go to places like Luke 16, 19 through 26, which is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, to say to someone who tries to think that, if you have any authority given to the Bible, you can never come to that conclusion because people who die, they go to one of two places. Both of them are places of confinement. And they go there not to roam the earth or to have any of this stuff that's described by demons as a job or as a purpose, and that is, you know, the spirit, spiritual uh, entities, the forces of darkness in this world, all the passages that we've looked at in relation to Satan and his henchmen earlier, that's not happening with dead people. Dead people go to a confined place and they are treated separately, and the Bible makes it clear even in the passage we read in Matthew uh, 25 about going ultimately one day to the same place as the demons, angel or Satan and his angels, which is the devil and his angels, which shows us at some point their destiny merges, but they are certainly described as separate, distinct groups of persons. This you'll find in theological writings, and some people believe this, who believe uh, in the gap theory. Have you heard of the gap theory? Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, period. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Wow, you thought you created the world. It looks like a mess in verse 2. Then he says, well, let there be light. There was a light and on it goes with the creation account. What happened there if you created the world? Uh, What I think they miss in that is the Hebrew recapitulation of the way they start stories, they tell the theme, and then they develop it. You can see that pattern throughout the book of Genesis, and yet people will say, well, if they created the heavens and the earth, and then it was without form and void, God didn't create things like that. Well, He is creating, though, in sequence, clearly, He says later, so that you would learn how to work and rest He could have created this all with one word. Instead, he goes through a series of events to show how he's putting things together so that you can work and create and do your work the way he did it. That's why the Bible explains that he did it this way. But people who see a gap there in what's called theologically the gap theory, even professors at Talbot, some of them believe this theory, will say... um, you know, here we have a gap. And in this gap, what we had is a world that existed before Adam, what we call a pre-Adamic race, and they all got destroyed before verse 2 of Genesis. And when they got destroyed, those spirits, they are dead people, were inhabiting the world or the universe as demons. So it's just a take on letter B. But it is a serious theory by a lot of people, but all I've got to say with a few things I've already said, that it's just not convincing to me at all. And if this is true, even though some smart people want to hold to this view, I'm thinking we know nothing about this in the Bible. I can go nowhere except in a gap between two verses, which I think is pretty common recapitulation of of storytelling which happens all the time. If you've noticed, we have the whole creation story in chapter 1, and then we get it all again in chapter 2 with more detail. That's the the pattern. That's how I see it, at least. I don't think demons are a pre-Adamic human race. I just don't buy it, because if you're going to say it, you're making an argument from a, a gap between two verses that I think fit together by the way the Hebrew 
text tells the story, if you're a gap theorist. Number two, or D, I'm sorry, not even close to D is number two. So scratch number two and letter D. Maybe they're the Nephilim. The Nephilim. Oh, I was hoping we'd get to the Nephilim. Let's get to the Nephilim. Turn your Bibles, please, once you write that down. To Genesis chapter 6. This is also a serious view, believe it or not. Either way, it's a weird passage. Genesis chapter 6. Just before the flood. Just after the long list of names of people, including Methuselah in chapter 5. People live in long lives because the world as we know it now was very different then. That's another sermon. But it says in verse number 1 of Genesis 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Durr, if whatever, right? I'm just thinking that's not needed to be said, it seems. Uh, And they took as their wives any that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he's flesh and his days shall be 120. I'm going to cut him short. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These, apparently the children, were the mighty men of old, who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. So what did he do? He's going to flood the planet. It grieved him in his heart, so he's going to blot out man he created on the face of the earth, and in comes Noah and the story of the flood. Some would say what happens here is the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, if you remember that from like our second week, the Ben Elohim was a phrase used in Job and, and in various places in the, in the Old Testament to refer to angelic beings. Okay? Nephilim, in this text, some people would say these were incarnate demons having relationships with human beings and having children called the Nephilim who were mighty. Now, they show up one more time in the Bible in Numbers 13. The Nephilim. We've got the report of the spies. We've got the concern that in the land we've got the Nephilim. Nephilim is translated in the Septuagint with a word that is transliterated into English, giants. It picks up the idea of giants, which is describing in in Numbers 13 the size of the people in the land of Canaan. Okay? If you tie those two together, which is hard to do, because one's pre-flood, one's post-flood, but you have what is built in some people's minds, this group of people that were offspring of this weird conflation of spirit beings and human beings. They say that's where the, that's where the demons came from. My only response to that is you can see that according to the rest of the Bible, looking back at the fall of Satan, we've already got Satan in Genesis 3. We've got angels described in, um, in, in, well, from the very beginning, the end of Genesis 3. Uh, we've got demons preceding the Nephilim. And if you have demons preceding the Nephilim and the description even of Satan in the very beginning in the garden and the call of uh, 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 the fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and even the descriptions in, in Rev 13, then it doesn't make any sense to me that the beginning or the origins of demons come as a result of the Nephilim. 
that though does not solve the, 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 the naughty problem, K-N-O, uh, problem of what's going on in this text. So it's compass night. I thought I'd give you a chart. So let's think this through because this is a very thorny and difficult passage. What's happening in this text? Okay. Now my chart doesn't look like yours because I needed more space. So you've got the gray parts there, right? Genesis 6, we've got to define sons of God, we've got to define daughters of men, we've got to figure out what the problem is, and we've got to see the pros and cons of each theory. You've got two theories, two views, you've actually got four, but you're not going to probably even entertain three and four, so commentators have come up with at least four, but there are two viable, in most people's minds, options for this, okay? Number one, the sons of God, they'll say, are angels. This is theory one which is what I just described, although there's no necessary connection between these folks being angels and the origin of demons coming as a result of their relationship with the daughters of men and the Nephilim being the demons. It doesn't make any sense uh, or doesn't, doesn't necessarily connect. But what happened here is the question. Okay, angels. Then the theory would be that the daughters of men are simply a way to describe the Human beings, they're mortals. What's the problem? Well, the problem is you got something really weird going on. You got the natural and the supernatural conflating in the sexual relationship, which that's the problem, and God is mad about it. Okay. What, what is there in support of this? Well, here's the biggest support of this. Ben Elohim is not used anywhere else as that phrase. You cannot find that phrase anywhere else in the Bible, that specific phrase, uh, referring to anything but angels. So that's a strong statement in support of that. Even more confirming to people that hold this view is that Jude, which we just read, verse 6, and if you keep reading in verse 7, it talks about the connection between Sodom and Gomorrah as a template and the angelic beings leaving their proper domain and the picture of the, the, the rampant homosexuality in Sodom uh, you have those two together as this paradigm of these unnatural relationships leaving domain, your domain, and, and, and engaging in a sexual relationship that's not, uh, not appropriate. It's a perversion. And, and so people say, well, those fit. Jude and Second Peter, uh, they, they, they speak to the same issue. And if you read that and you read Genesis 6 and you think, well, this is angels and mortals, those passages will fit together like puzzle pieces pretty well. Certainly a pro uh, in favor of this view. The other one, which until I started reading big chunks of extra-biblical writings, and by that I mean all the Jewish pseudopigrapha and, and, and the, the extra-biblical writings that go all the way back as far as we have them, uh, it is, and I can't say this because I haven't read every scrap of every Jewish extra-biblical writing, but I've read a lot of it as it relates to Genesis 6, and I cannot find a varied interpretation than what seems like the plain reading of the text, that angelic beings somehow were manifested and have some kind of sexual relationship with the daughters of men, human beings, and the mortal and the angelic get together, and we have this weird offspring that according to the extra-biblical writings are destroyed in the flood, Right? Uh, with the exception of their namesakes showing up in Canaan, at least it, as a reference by the Israelites that, wow, it's like the Nephilim, uh, which they do call them that in, in Numbers. 
that has really given me at least a lot more uh, pause that there was nobody and there was a lot of writings about all of the old testament stories and no one that i found so far has varied from the interpretation that angelic beings had sex with human beings what's the con well the con is the one floating around in your head right now that's too weird that's very bizarre and you got me there and most people will dismiss this view simply because it's weird it's very bizarre doesn't make much sense and to throw in some biblical support they'll start quoting matthew 22 angels don't marry okay let me read that text for you for in the resurrection they neither marry speaking of resurrected resurrected people they neither marry nor are given in marriage but they are like the angels in heaven okay the way by the way the people in favor of this view respond to that is simply by saying well yeah the angels in heaven don't marry because they're good angels these are the bad ones that's what Jude and Second Peter are talking about. Or they'll say, well, if this text is saying they can't, uh, well, that's not what it says. It doesn't say angels can't marry. It says they don't. And if you're saying, well, they don't have bodies, so they certainly can't have sex. Well, they're, they're eating lunch with Abraham, right? Uh, and that food's going somewhere. When they materialize, at least in the biblical accounts, they're, they're working through regular human function just like we do so i don't think matthew 22 totally takes this view off the table because angels in heaven do not get married it doesn't mean that they can't which is apparently what is the problem with genesis 6 if you take this view Um, another con which i think most commentators will bring up is this all seems like the lead-in into the flood and if it's the lead-in into the flood how can this be a reason for the flood it's not man's problem it's angels problem angels have created a problem among men but god now immediately indicts mankind for having all these evil thoughts and always wanting to do wrong so how in the world can you blame mankind for the flood which he clearly does if this is a angelic set of beings leaving their proper domain to have sex with human beings wow okay theory two the sons of God are, are, are the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth. The daughters of men are the line of Cain. And if you look through Genesis chapter 4 through 5, only two chapters there, you start to see these lineages spelled out. And okay, this is what's happening. The problem isn't angels and mortals. The problem is godly and ungodly people getting together the godly line of seth with the ungodly line of cain and when the good guys are just marrying whoever they want because they look good uh, and don't care about how they live or their morality then that's the problem in the passage okay what's in favor of this view well it certainly does draw on the context from chapter five to chapter six if you ask anybody who teaches hebrew they're going to say there are no real hard markers between chapter five and chapter six it's not like we're starting a new story we are coming right out of that without any real hard breaks grammatically right into the story of the uh, corruption of the earth so the context helps us there the only other thing i can say in favor of this view is it does show up as a later concern in the bible i mean obviously you can think of stories like samson and delilah or 
you know, all the concerns are, why can't you find a wife amongst, you know, the, the children of Israel, the daughters of Israel? I mean, the concern of this kind of godly preserved morality being kept because there's not relationships with ungodly folks, or even in Solomon's case, just marrying for the sake of political gain to make alliances with other people, it brings idolatry in, and God is certainly concerned about that throughout the rest of the Bible. A couple problems with the view, though. Number one, let's get back to the pro of the other view, Ben Elohim is never used for men. Although we do have combinations of the word Yahweh and Ben, Ben means son, so that's how someone would respond to that. Well, I know Ben Elohim is used for angels, that's true, and it's used that way exclusively, but, but Ben Yahweh is not. That's used of, of, of human beings, and so this is an exception. There's no current prohibition. If you're going to argue this, you're going to have to argue it from a place of silence in that there's nothing in the Bible that is telling people who you can and cannot marry. Obviously, by general revelation, men need to marry women, which is not the problem here, but to say, well, you can't marry if you're in Seth's line, you can't marry from Cain's descendants, you got nothing in the Bible that says that. You either got to argue from silence that that was a concern, or you've got to argue from natural revelation that it should prick anybody's conscience to be marrying just whoever you want. So maybe that's a bit of a problem for the view, or maybe not. That's how someone would respond to it if they believe theory too. The biggest problem, though, I think, is simply there's no grammatical indicators in the text that that's what we're talking about. The, the, the only thing given in this text to tell me, what I try to abbreviate here is there's no adjective for the daughters. The only modifier is that the, the daughters of man, <laughs> which everybody's a daughter of man, right? That's you're going to take out on a date. So where's the, the, the daughters of the bad men, the wicked daughters? The, we don't have any of that. The plain reading of the text is certainly going to lead you to theory one. The bizarreness of theory one is going to lead you to theory two. The weakness of theory two is going to make you wonder at night, maybe theory one is right. And you will go back and forth. And then you're going to come and ask me, and I'm going to go, not sure what's going on here. But it has, at least I'd say in the last four years, the more I've read extra-biblical rabbinic or or uh, pre-Christian writings from the Jewish folks and even post-Christian writings from non-Christian Jewish people, it is interesting how consistent they are in this view. But you don't want to hear from me on this probably. Here is my professor, uh, wrote a little paper. It's not that big. It's one page. Uh, but why don't you pass those out if you don't mind? Just pass them around. This is one page that summarizes uh, his view, which is probably more toward theory one as he concludes, but he has the same problems that, that I have with it. But just for your notebook. Some of you have created a notebook. You can throw that in there. The Identity of the Sons of God in Genesis 6 by Fred Dickinson. He was my prof back at Moody in the olden days. But that's a good one-pager from somebody who studied this for years. So deal with, deal with him on that. The Nature of Demons. Let us hurry along here as you find a home for that one-page sheet. The nature of demons. Don't need to turn to these. You know these passages. I'll read them for you, though. They're obviously spirit beings. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And if you're going, hmm, I'm so bored, I know they're spirit beings. You need to think through the implications of the fact that they're not spirit beings. They are not subject to physical restraints. Here's one of the problems. 
when you talk about me in your car on the way home. I can't hear you because you're moving the airwaves with your throat and your tongue and your lungs and it only goes so far and it's in the container of your car and I'm, as you drive away, a hundred yards and then a mile and then three miles away and I can't hear what you're saying about me because I am physically constrained. I need to have that decoding take place in my mind about what you're talking about, I need you to rattle some sound waves with some kind of distinguishing features so that the three little bones in my inner ear can vibrate and send electrical pulses to my brain and I can decode what you're saying and my spirit can understand what your spirit is trying to communicate. Demons don't have that concern. They are spirit beings. Just like you are a spirit... And as you lay in bed tonight without saying a word, you will muse and think and cogitate and imagine things in your spirit. That's the realm of your your thought life. Now, the Pentecostals have just made an absolute, you know, uh, doctrine on the fact that, that, that demons function in a physical reality when in fact they don't. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I get this question all the time when when we talk about demons. Can they know our thoughts, right? And I'm thinking, if they don't know our thoughts, right, on what reality, what plane of reality do they function? Well, Pentecostals will say, that's why we pray in tongues, right? So that we can pray in a way that the demons can't hear. That's my prayer language. And and for them, that just means ecstatic utterances just going, and all of that, God decodes on the other side. Well, I'm saying, number one, why do you need to say anything out loud anyway, right? If they can't hear you, now you've got to talk in, in, in you know, divine pig Latin, pardon the irreverence, but, you know, you really got to do that so that they can't understand you? Well, what if I just speak in English, assuming that all the demons know English, and I just speak really quietly? I'll just speak so quietly, they can't hear me very well. And as I speak like this, they won't know what I'm saying. Do you see how this, this will break down in our thinking eventually? If you understand we're dealing with spirit beings, you will not fall to some comic, simplistic view of demons thinking that somehow they function in a physical realm and they need you to vibrate sound waves so that they can understand what you're thinking. People say, where's the chapter and verse? I, I, all I, it's, here's one. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I need flesh and blood to be able to understand what you say. I don't know your thoughts because I'm physically bound. I'm constrained by physical parameters. Demons are not. Do they know what's going on in your head? My answer to that in short is yes. Absolutely. They are sin-promoting. Oh, see now, you put those two together? Think about this now. Now it's starting to make sense. Think of the temptations that come to your mind, right? You, You could try to trick demons out with your body language or your words, but it ain't gonna work. They know because they are spirit beings. They're not omniscient. They can't understand everything at once all the time, but as they focus their attention, right, which is what they must do as we learned in Daniel chapter 9, they have to be focused in somewhere to perceive. Their perception has to be focused. But, but here's the thing. We've got to realize that their agenda as sin-promoting beings, which is the whole point. They're fighting us. They're forces of evil. Those evil forces are working in the level of our minds and our thinking. More on that in the weeks to come. Three words. 
that may help. Unclean, we already saw evil in, in Matthew uh, or uh, Ephesians 6, but there it is again. They're called unclean spirits. They're called evil spirits. They want to do things in your thinking, in your mind, in your life that are unclean and evil. And all that we learned last time about Satan and all that he wants to accomplish, did you catch that? We had the agenda for our church, the agenda for our, your home, Satan's agenda for our, your, your life, all of those. The, the demons are the ones that are carrying his agenda out. And as such, all the things that we talked about last time, those are how or I should say, what they want to accomplish. How they accomplish it is on a spiritual level, in part. They're intelligent. No time for these passages, but I'll, I'll, you know them, I hope. It tells us in 1 John 4, 1-4, that we've got to test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. Thi- there are things that are happening in our culture, in our life, in our church, and in our home. We cannot just take at face value. There's a sense in which we have to be discerning, because demonic beings are intelligent they're shrewd they're strategic they take the truth and they twist it that's what first uh timothy 4 1 through 3 is all about deceitful spirits they want to deceive they're good at tricking we could go to all the passages about uh masquerading as angels of light and all of that but the point is they're intelligent they're also very powerful letter d they're powerful couple couple things here uh mark 5 three you don't need to turn there but you remember the story of the one that lived amongst the tombs in the gadarenes it said no one could bind him anymore as demons cause passivity in human beings their physical interaction with the world ends up being an amazing amount of strength at least in people in inflicting damage in revelation chapter 9 and we don't have time for all that. There's 11 verses there, which is just part of what they're doing in the book of Revelation. And these spirits are going out doing amazing things to the world. And they're inflicting amazing, incredible damage and torment, it says. And, la- and, and lastly, on this point, they're breaking natural laws. In, in, in Rev 16, they go out to break natural law. And, and that's hard. I can't break natural law. I can't break chains. I can't inflict damage on the earth the way they can. Just a reminder that they're very powerful. Now, while they're spirit beings, and in essence, that's what they are, the Bible tells us that they are um, capable of tangible manifestations. Everything, by the way, that they're capable of is all under the, the control, ultimately, of God's allowance. Remember Job 1 and 2, right? There's nothing that they do at least by way of example in that text, that's not without some kind of parameter. So while they can manifest themselves, we believe by things like this, we can just compare it to Abraham's visitors, right? We can compare it to Satan in the garden. Those are just two comparisons. If angels, good angels, can appear and have lunch with Abraham, and if Satan can appear and and have a manifestation in the garden as an animal which is in a bizarre context, but have a discussion with the first parents of the universe, then these kinds of statements start to look more real in Revelation chapter 16. And, and we should look at this just in closing. Let's go, to, let's go to this text. Revelation chapter 16, 13 and 14. Maybe we'll flip over to chapter 9 if we can squeeze it in. Rev 16, context. Verse 12, sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. The water was dried up, prepared the way for the kings of the east. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Okay, that's been defined in Revelation. We know who that is. And out of the mouth of the beast, we know that's the human 
uh, manifestation on earth, more, less of a manifestation and more of the person that he empowers. And out of the mouth of the, of the false prophet, that's the religious leader in this context, what comes out? Three unclean spirits like frogs. Well, that's weird. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to kings of the whole world. Now, up until that point, I'm thinking frogs, that's just symbolic. It's all apocalyptic. It's just trying to put in that it's just weird and it's not right. But then he says, performing signs, they go abroad to the kings of the world and assemble them for battle on the great day of of God the Almighty. That seems to be, in this context, a, 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 a manifestation, though they're depicted as frogs, they're people here going and doing what it says exactly, uh, assembling them for battle. They go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. Rev 9-7. Rev 9-7. This is the one about the locusts. And again, it's just a series of descriptions of them in this context, perhaps embellished views of who they are, but they're going out and having interaction with human beings on earth, like horses prepared for battle. I know it says like, and that's true. They are heads that look like crowns of gold, faces that were human, hair that's like a woman's hair, teeth like a lion, breastplates like iron, the noise of their wings like the noise of many chariots and running horses into battle. They have tails that sting like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tail. Well, whatever that looks like, we understand, by the way, verse 11, they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. We know we're talking about demons in this context. But the point is, there's some interface with mankind that actually causes real damage. Is it invisible? Is it manifestation of of some kind of physical reality? I think Rev 16 makes that probably more than uh, the preponderance of certainty in that direction. And here, perhaps the same. Are they showing up at your next, you know, office meeting? I, I doubt it. But it seems like, just like angels and Satan, the head demon, they have the opportunities to do that under the allowance of God. Let's pray. God, thanks for our study tonight. Please continue to give us discernment as we look at what we can affirm with certainty and what we have to speculate about. Some things are hard to understand in your word, as the Bible says, even about itself. And as we look at passages like Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it's hard for us to uh, find a place to file that. But even as good students of the word, we at least want to think it through as thoroughly as we can. Knowing that... um, even this last, very last point on our worksheet, it seems that it is possible that angelic beings, not only possible, that it has happened, that angelic beings and Satan himself have uh, embodied themselves in human flesh at some point in the past. And so perhaps even that, in looking at Genesis 6, makes that a possibility. But God, there's so much here for us to think through, but ultimately to know what their intentions are for our lives. It all starts with their interface with our thinking and our hearts. So God, give us protection and give us a great sense of discernment. Let us test the spirits to know what's right, what's true. And let us be people that are careful about the doctrines of demons, as the Bible calls it, as they try to take the truth and sprinkle enough truth in there with error so that we can start believing and thinking wrongly, drawing wrong conclusions about how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to believe, or what we're supposed to do. So make us more discerning now than ever before, knowing the time is short And the Bible says in Ephesians 5, the days are evil, so make us make the most of every opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen.